Has anyone ever known a good person named Kevin? Kevin Garnett helped me move once. Santa Cruz, you got to be a cool guy if you're from Santa Cruz, right? Like no one ever goes, oh, this douchebag from Santa Cruz cut me off. Kevin, I mean, he really drives the ship in an amazing way on the show. Funny is good, and Kevin's funny, but bright, even, even better. And the guy's just... Super high IQ. Exactly. Let's get this guy in front of a crowd. Yeah, go listen to the life of Raleigh. His last episode is gold. Oh, good. Mm. everybody what's up it's me it's kevin and welcome to this episode of the life of riley podcast i honestly don't know where to begin this one folks this subject is a convoluted one with so many layers and definitions and whatnot that i've really been struggling to boil it down uh for the podcast so that it doesn't go on and on and on whatnot but there is a lot to get to so I'm just going to try and jump in. In addition to all of the detail and trying to figure out which which of them are important and which ones you guys can figure out on your own, uh, this one's one that gets me so frustrated and angry while I do my research and try and take my notes that I get like rage exhaustion and have to step away and clear my head. I actually... Uh, it hit me so hard a couple I was going to record this a couple of days ago and I just I couldn't even get through the research I was getting so pissed off um, so here we are let's get to it um, if I do my I job that no matter today, what your political leanings or how you feel about the current state of immigration in general in this country today I believe you will walk away from this podcast aghast at what is happening, angry that you've been misled and itching to do something about it. This is not necessarily or completely a political issue. As far as I'm concerned, this is a humanitarian issue. And uh, there are plenty of people on the Republican side of the aisle uh, who, as they learn more details about what's been going on, that agree with me. So keeping that in mind, regardless of whether or not you are aware of my political leanings or agree with them or don't, I'd appreciate it if you just give the rest of this a listen. And uh, I'm pretty sure you're bound to learn something. I know I've learned quite a bit in the last couple of weeks. One of the first things I want to get out of the way is some terminology. All immigrants are not recognized equally or created equal in the eyes of the law or be that U.S. law, international law, the Constitution, contrary to way, the way that the Trump administration and a lot of people uh, on that side of the political spectrum want to characterize immigration, it's not all the way they characterize it. You can use the word immigrant to sort of broadly define anyone born in another country who comes to live in America. But 
that can include not just people who do it the right way as, um, as, as people like to say, you know, um, put in all the paperwork from their home country and spend tons and tons of money and, uh, that they don't have and all these kinds of things. That's not the only way to legally immigrate into the United States. Refugees are another type of immigrant and asylum seekers, which are very similar. The main difference between uh, what we would refer to as an asylum seeker and a refugee involves where they are when they request uh, asylum in the United States. An asylum seeker is someone who makes their way to the United States, goes to the authorities, whether that be a Border Patrol office, U.S. Customs and Immigration, or what, um, and basically says, hey, I'm here, I'm seeking asylum due to whether it be political, legal, uh, you know, uh, usually trumped up legalities, um, violence, threats of death, whereas a refugee is someone who does that prior to traveling to the U.S. Asylum seeker comes here, asks for asylum, a refugee does so either from a neutral country or from their home country, okay? Regardless of which way they do it, these processes take years and years and years to get through um, because of Homeland Security's backlog system. So if it's an asylum seeker, they fill out an I-589 form within a year of arriving in the U.S., and this requires details on their reasons for seeking asylum through uh, explanations of past criminal convictions, if there are any, uh, family and background information. Sorry if you can hear that oh, siren going by right now. Um, once the application is received, an asylum officer will order all the background checks and fingerprinting. And then the applicant then schedules an interview with an officer to review the I-589. And the applicant is allowed an interpreter and legal representation at no cost to the U.S. government. Not no cost to them, no cost to the U.S. government. Okay, get that? Only after the interview will the officer determine asylum eligibility and refer the application to an immigration court hearing. An immigration judge then grants or denies asylum. Now... Let's talk for a second about the immigration courts and immigration judges. You can't see it, but when I say those two terms, I'm making air quotes. Immigration courts and immigration judges. Okay? Immigration judges used to be called special inquiry officers. They are not judges, you guys. This name was arbitrarily changed to immigration judge in either, and I'm a little unclear on this because uh, the expert that I heard interviewed on it alternately said this was changed in the 70s and then the 90s. And then it sort of sounded like she said this term was changed in the 70s and the other was changed in the 90s. But either way, it's been decades that this has been in use. Okay, this isn't a new thing. But they just arbitrarily said, 
you know what? Instead of calling them special inquiry officers, we're going to call them immigration judges now. And since they didn't change, they only changed the title of the position and not a, none of the duties associated with it. There was no need for any discussion, oversight, or public review. They were just allowed to do it. One day they were special inquiry, inquiry officers, and the next they were judges. So since they're now judges, the activities they carried out, which had previously just been referred to as proceedings or reviews, well, they must now be called courts, right? If they're judges, they have to be holding court, right? That's what judges do. They sit on a bench and they have a court and it's very legal. Well, immigration courts are also purely civil matters. They do not adjudicate criminal cases whatsoever. If the reason that a person is up for deportation is because they were accused or convicted of a crime, that has already been dealt with in a criminal court. They've already either been convicted or uh, served their time or did a plea deal or, but the, the immigration court doesn't have any, doesn't consider any criminal charges against the person. All of that has already been dealt with. All this is, is deciding whether or not this person gets to stay in the United States. Okay. That's all they do. So because of this, and because it's not a real court, there are no attorneys provided to those. And I believe they refer to them as respondents rather than defendants. No attorneys provided. And uh, there's no jury, no other aspects of due process that a typical American thinks of when they hear the words court and judge. Okay. So it's basically just administrative thing uh, with a, with a, with a, uh, a name that doesn't match what's going on. And not only that, but these so-called courts aren't part of the judicial branch. They're part of the Department of Justice, which means that they're part of the executive branch. Hello? This is a huge deal, you guys. Especially as it relates to why they might have made that name change. Okay? Because it means that since they're part of the Department of Justice, which is part of the executive branch, it means that these so-called judges serve at the pleasure of the Attorney General. And by extension, at the pleasure of the president. Okay? If they were in the judicial branch, in the judicial branch, judges, real judges, are given lifetime appointments and total independence from the executive branch. Okay? They may have their decisions overturned, but they are not at the beck and call or at the whim of the executive branch to carry out policy decisions or to follow policy decisions. Their job is to follow the law and to do what's right and to do what's fair and yada, yada, yada. These so-called judges in the immigration courts don't have those powers or those privileges. They are employees of the department of justice. And they get their walking orders from the attorney general. 
Mm-hmm. Interesting, right? And this all comes into play here as we, as we go further into this. So it's the Executive Office for Immigration Review, which they also call EOR, which I think is pretty funny. So how does all this affect the way these courts and judges are able to operate? Well, one example is that the Trump administration and Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who do a whole fucking episode about that guy, uh, have instituted a quota system now. Uh, as of late last year, early this year, um, on immigration judges. So these judges, and there's not very many of them, you guys, are required to achieve 700 case completions per year. 700. This is a quota requirement of these judges that's been enacted since Trump took office. So just do the math on that. If the judge works... Monday through Friday, every week of the year without missing a single day, only taking off weekends, no vacations, no golf outings, no nothing, right? Monday through Friday, every single week of the year. That's completing just over two and a half cases per day. It's like 2.6 something, 2.67, 2.69 or something when I did the math. Okay, well, now we're talking about lives here. We're talking about people's lives and livelihoods and families, and they're just expected to crank them out assembly line style. Okay, a lot of these stories are complicated and nuanced and really need proper attention paid to them. And I don't say that just for asylum seekers, okay? There are American citizens often who are erroneously marked for, not just marked for, but actually deported through these courts. I think within the last few years, it's something like 23,000 American citizens. Not naturalized citizens, you guys. Not people who, you know, not, not like, not legal aliens or whatever you want to call them. Not, not green card holders. Not, not naturalized citizens. These are full on like like me born in america who have been determined for one reason or another to be not u.s citizens even though they can prove they are but because they get rushed through the courts so quickly and in some cases are ignorant of what the hell's even going on intimidated uh, they figure, well, I'm an American citizen. They're not going to actually deport me. I mean, come on. And the next thing they know, boom. And once you're deported, it's on you to prove that you're not, that, that you weren't supposed to be deported and they don't let you talk to your family and they don't, you know, so this isn't, you know, we're not talking about this just for, just for people who are fleeing chaos and murder and corruption in their home countries. This, this this affects everybody, you guys. All right. And so now that we've got a brick on the gas pedal of these immigration courts with these judges having to rush through cases without due process. Here, I'll give you an example. I'm not going to go into his story because it would be a whole nother two hour episode. Okay. Google the name Mark Little. 
M-A-R-K, first name. Last name is L-Y-T-T-L-E. You don't have to do it now. Jot it down, make a note, whatever. Give it a Google later. There's a New Yorker story about it. There's lots and lots of stories. You want to see what can happen to an American citizen through a couple of little uh, lines that were left blank on a form and a couple other ones that were filled in erroneously. Yeah, it's pretty messed up, you guys. You will not believe what happened to him. All right, getting a little off track. So, as the National Immigrant Justice Center says, and I quote, While there are many ways that Congress and this administration could improve the efficiency of the immigration court system, Forcing judges to meet an arbitrary quota within an underfunded and backlogged court system will only result in limiting due process, curtailing judges' deliberations, and denying immigrants adequate time to find lawyers and gather evidence. With this quota policy, this administration is essentially hijacking immigration courts to achieve its goal of deporting as many immigrants as possible as quickly as possible. Such appropriation of any part of the U.S. justice system should alarm Americans. I would like to throw in the word all in there. It should alarm all Americans. That all is mine. The rest of it was a quote, and I end the quote. All right, so back to asylum seekers. So it was already, as we've already discussed, a difficult, years-long process in an already underfunded and backlogged system is now exacerbated by this new quota system. And another program just put in place by Sessions and Trump, where they are sending immigration judges from all over the country, from their already overwhelmed courts, to what they are calling surge courts which are set up at detention centers near the border. Now, when they first decided to do this, they were like, man, we're going to be have, we're going to be deporting so many people right at the border. We're just going to be nabbing them when they get here and then pop, popping them right back out. So they were going to need these surge centers. So they call all these immigration judges down for these like week long details is what they called them. <clears throat> and said, okay, you got to, you got to stop what you're doing there in your home state, in your court, and you got to come down here to, you know, Texas or Arizona or New Mexico or California or wherever, and you gotta you gotta man this surge court so that we can get rid of all these horrible, horrible people that are bringing crime and drugs and death to our country. Oh, and rapists. And so they did that, expecting there to be this surge, and then there wasn't a surge. Oopsie. So. These immigration judges get down there and there's no cases for them to try. Meanwhile, back uh, at their court, there's no judge and there's thousands and thousands of cases already backlogged being delayed even further because there's no judge there. Because like I said before, we don't have very many of these people in this country. Okay. (laughs) So Eeyore itself compiled a chart in response to a uh, Freedom of Information Act request that shows that 22,811 hearings were rescheduled in courts throughout the country because judges were sent to surge courts. So, you know, a delayed case can mean 
delayed employment authorization, delayed protection, delays in being reunified with spouses and children who are still in the home country in dangerous conditions, waiting for this approval so that they can come to the, come to America. You know, I I mean, there's the, the repercussions of this are immense and, and widespread. Okay. So let's get something real clear here. This is one of the biggest things and one of the one of the first reasons that made us want to do this episode. There is nothing illegal about seeking asylum in the United States. Yet the Trump administration currently has thousands of asylum seekers in detention centers and jails. Many of them are accused of criminal acts. Okay. When they have not done anything other than what they were supposed to do in their situation. This violates the constitution. It breaks us immigration laws and international law. And it even goes against the department of Homeland security's own written policy. The fifth amendment prohibits the government from depriving any person regardless of citizenship of their liberty without due process of law period full stop due process requires a valid reason for putting a person behind bars and it also requires that meaningful procedures are in place to make sure detention actually serves those goals the constitution does not permit the government to take people's liberty away arbitrarily, regardless of whether the Trump administration wants to send a message. Immigration laws require the government to consider the facts in each case to determine if the individual is a flight risk or a danger to public safety before it detains that person. Similarly, International law prohibits the use of detention to deter asylum seekers from pursuing their claims. Hello, that's the exact word that they're using. It's a deterrent. It's a deterrent. It's a deterrent. Without an individualized determination that detention is justified because the person is a danger or a flight risk. But the administration is jailing asylum seekers without providing them a meaningful opportunity to show that they don't need to be locked up in the first place. Further, the indiscriminate detention of asylum seekers violates the Department of Homeland Security's own policies. In 2009, the Obama administration issued a directive instructing ICE field offices to grant release on humanitarian parole to asylum seekers provided that they met a series of stringent requirements. They had to pass their credible fear screening, which is part of that first interview that I talked about before, which determines whether there is a significant possibility the person is eligible for asylum. Next, they need to prove their identity. They need to pose no danger to the community and provide an address where they will be living and and commit to appearing for court dates. Sounds pretty fucking reasonable to me. This directive is still in place since 2009. Yet in practice, people are being illegally detained for months on end, even though they've met the directive's requirements. 
And all of this is being done under the guise of the administration's new zero-tolerance policy on illegal immigration. We've all seen sessions out there by the border, right? The problem is requesting asylum is not illegal immigration. These are people who, upon arriving in the United States, voluntarily went to the authorities and requested safe haven. They are not drug mules. They are not MS-13. They are not sleeper cells. They're not even migrant laborers who seem to be the folks that most of the Trump supporters I've talked to find the most repugnant in the first place. In many cases, these are people who are fleeing death squads in their own countries, corrupt state police forces, who are funded and or armed many times by the good old United States. So, we send money and guns to their country for their government... Their government uses that money and those guns to further their own agenda and murder private citizens who speak out against them. Then, when people see that happening and go, holy crap, this is awful. We got to get out of here. They're going to kill us and our babies. Let's go to America. They flee to America. They do exactly what they're told they're supposed to do. And we lock them up. Oftentimes, in concrete floored cells with no mattress, no pillow, no nothing, just one of those tinfoil-looking Mylar space blanket things. That's it. Even children, you guys, we're, we're getting to the children part, okay? They're given no explanation, no due process, no representation, and no contact with their families, and no idea when they're going to be let go. On what level does this sound reasonable? So yeah, now we're tearing children away from their parents because Trump and Sessions want to look like badasses who won't stand for these people from shithole countries, as our ever-so-eloquent commander-in-chief described them. So you want some examples? I've got some examples for you. Sure I do. You might want to sit near a sink for this part or get yourself a bucket. Because you're going to want to puke. Probably going to want to cry. You might even cry at some point. You're definitely going to scream. You might even feel like breaking some shit. After those feelings pass, or sort of between the waves of them, I hope you'll share this stuff with everyone you can think of. Whether it's by way of this podcast, another podcast, Facebook, Twitter, News sites, I don't care, but people need to know about this shit, okay? And then after you share, what's the next thing that we want you to do? What do you think? Wendy's not here for this one, but she'd be shouting it from across the room right now. Vote, people. Vote. Get your ass to the polls every opportunity you have. I don't care if it's a special election, a midterm election, where the only office on the ballot in your town is dog catcher. You get yourself down there and vote for whichever dog catcher you agree with. You want to know why? Do you want someone who supports this kind of shit to be able to say they started their political career as the dog catcher in your town because you couldn't be bothered to vote? 
Don't laugh. This is how it happens, you guys. That's how it starts. Change starts locally. It starts at the bottom. Vote. Before I get into too much more, let me address something that you guys have probably heard about or seen online. Uh, And for those of you who haven't, the moment you bring some of this stuff up, any of your right-leaning friends are going to bring this up, I can promise you. Uh, There's at least one photograph I know of. There's probably plenty more that shows children being detained by the government. um, And the photo was taken during the Obama administration. So supporters of the current policies are pointing to that photo as proof using air quotes again, that separation of minor children from their parents has been a policy prior to now. I can assure you that is utter hogwash. The children in those photos are what we, or the government, I should say, refer to as unaccompanied minors, similar to how airlines use that term, right? But this is children who arrived at the border without any parents with them, but without any adults with them, usually 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. Okay. Not quite the same thing as physically pulling 18 month old babies out of their mother's arms, which is what's happening now. All right. Literally, we're talking about infants, you guys. I'm going to play you guys some some sound bites. I'm going to play you guys some audio of exactly what I'm talking about here. There is at least one case that I'm aware of where the child was 53 weeks old. Do the math. That's one year and one week. And this child was taken away from its mother in San Diego, I believe this was. Now, even in many parts of America, but definitely in almost any third world or developing country, you think maybe that baby was still breastfeeding? Huh. Bet it was. Bet it couldn't speak. If it could, I bet it couldn't speak English. Hmm. Let's see, and we already learned a few minutes ago that there's no representation when you're in these immigration courts. You don't get a lawyer provided to you by the government. So how's this 53-month-old baby supposed to state their case to the judge? And you're going to hear the voice of a person who saw this 53-month-old child in this immigration court firsthand. So you don't have to take my word for it. Okay. All right. So here's the first clip. This is Bianca Jagger being interviewed on Christiana Amanpour's show about what's going on. What has been going on anyway in Nicaragua. She was down there in May to participate in a Mother's Day march based on the governmental uh, shoot to kill orders on unarmed civilians and students. Uh, protesting the rigged election that they just held. 
So this is what Bianca Jagger had to say. And the reason I'm including this is to give you one idea of what's happening in one country that is causing people to seek asylum in the United States. What I'm doing here is to support the students and to call upon Daniel Ortega and his wife, Rosario Murillo, who is the vice president, to stop the killing of the students, of the youth in this country, and of the civilian population. Therefore, I feel it's my duty to be with the mothers that, and to call. You know, maybe he will change his mind and, uh, and stop and release the, the students who are in prison today, because many of those students have appeared to be torture, uh, to be burned, uh, and, to be, and to be killed. And, well, and the report that I, that I participated yesterday from Amnesty, the report is called Shoot to Kill. And that is what I've seen while I've been in Nicaragua, that the police, the paramilitary, and the turbas, as they call here, and the riot police are shooting to kill the students and anyone who opposes them. Bianca, you were at the Managua University uh, earlier this week and whole mayhem erupted. And you were quoted as saying they, the security forces, were dressed to look as if they were going to war, except that their targets were young, unarmed students. Describe what you yourself experienced as that broke out at the university. I was at a university called the University of Central America, UCA. And across the street from that university is the engineering, engineers of university. And while I was visiting the dean of that university who's been persecuted, uh, we began to hear shots and we began to hear mortars and we came down and I went all the way to the area uh, close to the other university where I could see what was happening. And first we saw the uh, paramilitaries who arrived, the Juventud Sandinista, and then uh, the population came to support the students who were inside, barricade inside the engineer's university. And there was a moment of, of calm. But then they sent on the, un, the anti-riot police. But the anti-riot police are coming dressed. And some of them, some of the police has AK-47. Some have um, uh, weapons of war. And they come on uh, as if they go into war. And the most shocking thing to me when I saw that is that they coming to shoot and to kill the students who are unarmed and who are determined to be fighting a civic, um, nonviolent revolution in this country, have no intention in any way who use violence against the Ortega regime. And why is that happening? And, and for those people who cannot understand the difference of having young people who have been the victims, who have been the ones who have been killed. So far, we have 85 people who have been killed. There is at least 900 or 1,000 who have been wounded. There are many hundreds who have disappeared and who are in jail. And this continues, and it doesn't seem to stop. We need the international community to speak up. We need the leaders from Latin America who speak up. We need Mr. Almagro, who is the secretary of the OAS, to speak up. Because Mr. Almagro gave the seal of approval to the elections in Nicaragua, the elections that were not real elections that were stolen from the people in Nicaragua. So now it's his turn. What is happening? I mean, why is well, Nicaragua not the center of attention? Well, why is it not important that 
students, that kids have been killed. All right. So these next sets of clips are from Chris Hayes' show on MSNBC. And for anyone who's listening, if you don't care for MSNBC or you don't care for Chris Hayes, kind of doesn't matter for these clips because the voices that you will hear in these clips, the uh, the woman that you will be hearing is a woman named Laura St. John, who is the legal director of the Florence Project, which is a nonprofit in Arizona that provides free legal services to people in the immigration court system in Arizona. And the other guest on the show whose voice you'll hear is a man named Lee Gellert, I believe is how it's pronounced. He is the ACLU's deputy director of the Immigrants' Rights Project. So these are two people who are in the immigration courts day in and day out and work with these people every day. And they are speaking of what they personally are seeing with their own eyes and dealing with in their work. So this isn't a matter of opinion. This, these are statements of fact. Okay. So you can whine about the source all you want, but these people are just reporting what they're, what they're seeing out there in the trenches. All right. So there's three of these clips playing for you now. What's happening right now is really unprecedented. What we've seen here in Arizona is actually, since January, over 200 cases of parents being separated from their children. And some of these children are extremely young, as you mentioned. Um, we've actually seen children who are two years old regularly. And uh, just last week, we saw a 53-week-old infant in court without a parent. It's the Office of Refugee Resettlement is tasked with housing children who are uh, unaccompanied minors. And in the past, that's always referred to uh, children who cross the border sort of on their own and, and wasn't really involving young children like what we're seeing now. But um, what we're seeing now is that because the government is separating the children from the parents, the government is actually you know, rendering these children as unaccompanied minors and making them unaccompanied and so bringing them into these shelters. You've got a situation where there are unaccompanied minors who cross the border by themselves. There are. And, and they some, tend to be 14, 15, like, you know, and that's unfortunate that they're here by themselves and they need somewhere to go. That's one situation. But why create that situation? And so that's are, what's happening now. Okay, so we're we, creating. But I just want to be clear. We didn't do that before. Policy used to be you show up with an 18 month old in your arms. It, you're not going to be given. You're not going to be told, hey, you can come to the U.S. You will be processed with that child. This is unprecedented. This is the worst thing I've seen in 25 plus years of doing the civil rights work. I mean, I am talking to these mothers and they are describing their kids screaming, mommy, mommy, don't let them take me away. Five years old, six years old, and they're just being ripped away. I, I Do really, they see them? I, I really, they don't see them. They get to speak to them once in a while. But of course, if you're talking about an 18 month old, two years old, they can't even speak on the phone. I really feel like these policy debates are becoming so abstract. If the policymakers could sit in those ICE offices down there at the border for a day and watch these little kids begging not to be taken away. They're already traumatized from having to flee their countries, and then they're taken away. The medical evidence is overwhelming that we may be doing permanent trauma to these kids. 
And yet the government's finding every way they can to try and justify it. And, and let me make two points about the statements that the secretary has been putting out, Secretary Nielsen. She's saying you don't want your child taken away. Go to a port of entry and present yourself and say you want asylum. People who were presenting themselves, including the Congolese mom, who's the lead plenaries, presented themselves at a border, still had their child taken away. I want to talk about the story for a second. Woman fleeing the Congo. She right. comes to the United States, not sneaking in. She's she, she showing up at a port of entry to say, I am here seeking asylum in America, the beacon of liberty with my child. I throw myself on your mercy. And the U.S. government does what? They put her in a makeshift hotel with the daughter for four days. And then they say to them, we want the daughter to come in another room for a second. The daughter goes in the other room. The mother then hears the child screaming, please, please don't take me away from my mommy. The mother wasn't told for four days where the child was going. She went to Chicago. The mother's in San Diego. Chicago might as well be the moon for someone from a little village in the Congo. Gets to speak to the daughter once every few weeks for a few minutes. When we file the lawsuit, then the government says, well, by the time she made it to the Congo, she no longer had her papers. Well, of course not. And they said maybe she wasn't really the mother. The judge says, well, why didn't you do a DNA test? They do the DNA test, which takes two seconds. And Boom. of course, she's the mother. Of course, the mother. All right. So there you go, guys. Straight from the horse's mouth, from the people that are there. And this is just, you know, a few minutes that I just had to pull out and and share. Uh, there will be links to... All of these videos, all of these interviews um, that I'm quoting from, there will be tons and tons of links in the show notes. Unfortunately, <clears throat> my computer restarted to do a freaking Windows update, and I hadn't saved my notes, so they're all gone. But I will find everything that you need, and uh, it will be in the links, along with some new developments since the original recording was done. I'm not going to get into all of that, but just check the show notes and there will be links to those stories as well. All right. All right. Let's continue from here. I'll see you at the end. So as I said, when a child is meeting with an attorney, if they're lucky enough to have one, or appearing before a judge, their ability to explain why, are they, why they are there and the reasons they might be seeking refuge are limited to non-existent. Again, we're talking about very, very young children here, you guys. And here's the thing. Unlike those kids in the picture we just talked about, these kids have a parent who was with them who could potentially answer all of those questions. Who, I'm guessing, wants to answer all of those questions. But that parent was separated from the child and taken by DHS to another facility. On what planet does this make any sense morally or even just from the perspective of being efficient, for God's sake? These kids are currently being held for an average of 45 to 55 days. That's the average, which means that the middle of the scale. That means there's a lot of kids that are being held a lot longer than that. For months. 
the government is now using with private contractors, which is another freaking whole part of this story. They're using converted Walmarts as detention centers. They're able to fit 1,200 beds into a Walmart. If they're lucky enough to actually use beds. Because unfortunately, we have a senator from, I believe, Washington State. Either Washington or Oregon. Who recently tried to uh, visit one of these and he wasn't allowed in. A senator, you guys. A United States senator. He posted it on his Facebook page. I'll post a link to the video. It's freaking asinine. He was able to get into one of the other ones. Oh, yeah, and he described what he saw there. Kids in cages, you guys. A little fencing made up, you know, like a cage. And then nets over the top so they can't climb out. Concrete floor and one of those space blankets that we talked about earlier. Yeah. That's what our government's doing to these kids. And we have a senator who has seen it. The woman named Wendy Young, who's the president of Kids in Need of Defense. Acronym is KIND. When asked if this new policy is likely to achieve its desired effect as a deterrent on people fleeing their home countries for America, she said, quote, This is truly a refugee crisis. People become refugees when they're desperate to escape violence. The violence is throughout Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, and the governments are too weak or too corrupt to control it. So people make the only choice they feel they have available, and they run. You're not going to be able to stop that until conditions in the home country improve. And as I think I made a case for earlier, the United States clearly isn't doing anything to help conditions in those home countries improve. And, oh, you might say, that's not our responsibility. Well, it's not our responsibility to be sending them fucking guns and shit either, is it? And training them in how to use them. Is it? The guys that are doing the killing. Hmm. Hmm. Scratch your head over that one. In Nicaragua, you heard Bianca Jagger talk about it. Right? They've instituted a shoot-to-kill policy. Citizens peacefully protesting a fraudulent election. How many people have been killed since that video was made? That was made back in May. It's the middle of June now. How many people? How more people have been disappeared, tortured, murdered? Hmm? That was happening in your hometown. I bet you'd want to get the fuck out of there. And I bet if there was a country nearby that had a reputation as a safe haven for people in your situation, you'd probably go there. Yeah, you would know it was going to be tough. You would know it was going to be dangerous to get there. You would know it was going to be hard. You know you were going to be sneered at by a lot of the citizens of that country. You, you've heard the horror stories, but you've also heard the good stories. And in general, you trust that the people in the United States are good people. And then you get there. And they throw you in a detention center and they take your child away from you and they don't let you talk to it 
on the except maybe occasionally on the phone. The woman from the Congo, she's in San Diego. They take her, what was her her daughter? What seven? Take the daughter to Chicago. She doesn't even know what Chicago means. And what what do you think the kid's going through? <laughs> it's unfucking believable. I can't even say that we exactly treat them like criminals, though, right? Because even people on death row here in the States get to visit with their kids from time to time. So we're treating them worse than we treat our own criminals. When you think about it. John Kelly. Let's talk a little bit about what John Kelly, Trump's chief of staff, said on NPR back on May 11th. When asked if this was cruel treatment to be taking refugees' children away from them. He said the children will be taken care of, put in foster care or whatever. (laughs) Or whatever? That sounds like a really well thought out policy, doesn't it? Sounds like he's really crossing all his T's and dotting all his I's. Like, before I go on this interview, um, I'm going to make sure I really know what what I'm talking about. Oh, you know, whatever. (laughs) Jesus Christ, these people. So again, yeah, and I'm going to keep drilling this. I'm going to keep hammering this, you guys. We're talking about people who are going through the proper channels, okay, and do have legitimate claims for asylum. Get that through your head. Make sure you are crystal clear on who we're talking about here. These are the people who are being, having their children physically taken from them and they're separately detained in violation of the Constitution, U.S. and international laws, and DHS's own written policies. If this were wartime, these would be war crimes under the Geneva Convention. That's no shit. And why is this happening? Why? Where did this sudden need for this harsh zero tolerance, let's take separate kids as a deterrent thing come from? Why did, why did they need this? Because Trump is pissed about the increase in the number of apprehensions at the border. In March and April, the number of people apprehended trying to cross the border illegally rose to the highest points so far in Trump's presidency, and he simply cannot have those numbers going up. His base would lose their freaking minds, you guys. They don't care why people are coming here. They only know that they don't want them here. And Trump promised he would do something about it. And since he's clearly not getting his big glorious wall, this is what they've come up with. We will target asylum seekers and refugees and use them to detour your average border crossing family that's just coming here to pick fruit or nuts or lettuce or do dishes or clean hotel rooms or be a nanny to rich people's kids. 
<laughs> that's that's the grand idea here, you guys. Let's commit these atrocities so that it looks like we're deporting tons and tons of horrible people. And with the expectation that it'll keep <laughs> the actual possible people that we're trying to keep out out. It's so fucking asinine. It's just mind boggling. And the fact that people are not screaming this from the rooftops is, is also mind boggling to me. This has been kind of where my brain has been at ever since the election. I got to admit, you want know, one of the reasons why it's so hard for me to do this podcast recently is because I can't fucking keep up. Every day brings another shitstorm from this administration. And yeah, even though not every episode of this podcast is political, you know, a lot of times we just like to have fun, do goofy stuff, you know, whatever, still want to do those shows. But my God, when every day you wake up and there's another just flood of vomitous from from this administration, it's like... Oh, God, I was working on a show about that. Now I got to do a show about this. Oh, now that's fucking over. This is one of the things, you know, it's like, what what needs our attention most at any given moment on any given day? Which of these things is the most egregious? I don't, I don't is it this one? No, is it that? I, I, they're doing a fantastic job of spinning all of these plates of controversy so that we can't really focus on just one. Until now, that is. Because this is the one, you guys. Of the people, by the people, for the people. Remember? And once we get the momentum going, we'll knock this one down, and then we'll just take on the rest of them. The rest of their fucking issues, one by one. And all the while, Mueller's going to be digging away quietly in the background. You know, the administration and all, you know, Fox and Friends and all those people, they like to think that we've all forgotten about that investigation and all that kind of stuff. We haven't, guys. Mm -mm. We haven't forgotten about any of it. We're still paying attention. We just know that your pundits are full of shit. So we're just waiting until the actual report comes out. Oh, yeah. And now there's the news that there's speculation now that Cohen is going to turn state's evidence because his lawyers have backed out. So now he's a man without a country, literally. And uh, so speculation from the legal community is that he's just going to drop trowel and uh, and uh, turn state's evidence. So that could be interesting. Anyway, there is so much more to this subject. I feel like I've barely even scratched the surface, but I think this is a good jumping off point for those of you that aren't aware that this is actually happening in this country, sanctioned by our own government. And it's not a secret. We just don't know about it. The way that it's spun, you know, in their press briefings and whatnot, it's all about illegal immigrants and 
terrorists and all this kind of stuff. It's only just been very recently that people have been coming out publicly and saying what's actually happening. So if you guys are interested in more about this subject or similar subjects like the Mark Little story that I mentioned earlier, or uh, if you'd like me to do a part two on this one, maybe I could get a guest in that, uh, that knows more than I do on this subject. But, um, you know, tell your friends about this shit, get it out there. I, I will be posting, I will be posting links on the website to everything that I have on this subject, including some stuff that I haven't even used because I don't want this to be a three and a half hour rant fest and bore the hell out of you guys. I think that's it for now. Let's do a fun one next time. Okay. <laughs> Love you guys. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. Hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, whatnot. We love you. Bye-bye.